Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Are you a woman over 40? Do you believe that this is both the very best and the very worst time of your life? Are you looking to find the humor in being this age and some insight into what it all means? Then check out Everything is Fine, a new podcast for women on the other side of 39. Hosted by Lucky Magazine founding editor Kim France and podcaster Tally Abacassis, each episode digs deep into the identity shift that comes with navigating what can be an alternately weird and liberating stage of life. A chat show with interview guests from the media and entertainment worlds, Kim and Tally combine fun subjects like fashion over 40 and beauty tips with big subjects like menopause and anger. It's a great listen, empathetic, insightful, and most of all, entertaining. So subscribe to Everything is Fine wherever you listen to podcasts. You must Welcome to another episode of Make Me Over, a special presentation of You Must Remember This. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today's storyteller is Farin Name, who you may know from her blog and Twitter account, Self-Styled Siren. Farin has written about film and film history for the New York Times, Film Comment, Sight and Sound, and many other publications. And she's also written essays and done video introductions for Criterion and the Criterion Channel. She was also the first guest on the first episode of You Must Remember This, our lost episode on Kim Novak. Farron, welcome to Make Me Over. Tell us about Marie Dressler. Who was she? Well, Marie Dressler was an old-time vaudeville star who had been around for many years, and she had already had a hit movie called Tilly's Punctured Romance. But Marie Dressler always had a very up-and-down kind of career. So when she hit the big time in Anna Christie, it was kind of a surprise to everyone. But she was very much the right actress for the right moment in history. It was the depths of the Depression, 1930, 31, 32. Those were some of the worst years that anybody could remember. And Marie Dressler, as a woman who not only had known hard times, but looked like she had known hard times, was somebody that audiences really took to their heart. And how did Marie Dressler come into your life? 
The first time I saw Marie Dressler, it must have been Dinner at Eight, the 1933 movie that she made for George Cukor, which I think is her best-known movie to this day. She cracked me up, and she was so unique, and her presence was so delightful that I started seeking out her other movies. In addition to not being beautiful or or glamorous, Marie Dressler also kind of specialized in playing people who were down and out. For the most part, she would play alcoholics. She would play people who were out of work. In Anna Christie, she's playing a broken-down old prostitute, and she's meant to sort of symbolize the fate that might await Greta Garbo if she continues on her current path. And so I think that's still not something that you see very often in current movies. Join us, won't you, as Farron Neme tells us the story of Marie Dressler. Give me a whiskey, ginger ale on the side. And don't be stingy, baby. It was 1930, and at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, everyone from studio head Louis B. Mayer to the grips on the sound stages held their breath to see if the biggest star on the lot, Greta Garbo, had what it took to make it in talkies. The movie was Anna Christie, adapted from Eugene O'Neill's Broadway success by pioneering woman screenwriter Frances Marion. And in the end, Anna Christie was a hit. But what few anticipated, except perhaps Frances Marion herself, was that the movie would also launch one of the most unusual and beloved movie stars of the studio era. I'll tell you why she didn't want to talk to me. Because I'm a tramp, that's why. Her old man kicked me off the bus and she come there to live on it. Yeah. He didn't want any old wharf rats around a nice young girl. Marie Dressler, large-figured, not beautiful, almost 62 years old and looking every day of it, played just three scenes in Anna Christie, one of them expressly written for her by her old friend Marion. Yet Dressler's reviews were even better than those for The Great Garbo. Three years later, when the Motion Picture Herald released its closely watched list of the biggest box office draws in pictures, Garbo was on it, but she didn't crack the top 20. Marie Dressler was number one. Marie appeared with the greatest and most gorgeous stars of the turn of the century stage. But both then and later, Dressler said she felt no sense of competition with the beauty queens. She reveled in the freedom of being a comic player. Glamour is always about mystery, and it feeds off stillness. A pratfall will never be glamorous. Marie Dressler was a whirlwind of motion on stage, and years later in her films, a comic reaction from Marie involved everything from her scalp to her toes. The aging process, the way it made certain parts of her face and body sag and even flap, was just more material for Marie to work with. Glamour also requires a willing suspension of disbelief, an agreement to accept the result of stupefying hours in hair, makeup, and costume fittings as the natural state of a beautiful woman. 
There was no such barrier between Marie Dressler and her audience. She was honest and artifice-free. Not a goddess to be worshipped, but an everyday woman to be loved. For a few short years in the early 1930s, right up to Dressler's death from cancer in 1934, the American public loved nothing better than to see their Marie play a drunk or a dowager and steal every scene from glamour girls less than half her age. They knew that Dressler had been down and out for most of the 1920s. They knew more or less how old she was, despite the frequent fudging of her birth year. That Marie Dressler became the biggest star in movies was an achievement that told depression-battered audiences it was never too late for success. Her talent was such that she remains the most beloved female comic movie star of the early 1930s. Marie Dressler was born Lila Maria Coburg in Coburg, Ontario in 1868. Her father, Alexander, was a self-styled professor of music, a former officer in the German army who had emigrated to Canada under murky circumstances. He made a living in part by giving piano lessons to the local children, but he was such a hot-headed tyrant that eventually his pupils would go elsewhere for lessons. The family, consisting of Lila, her mother Anna, and her older sister Benita, would move again and again as their patriarch sought out new places to start over. Marie loved her small, delicate, and long-suffering mother Anna. As for her father, Dressler later wrote, I never liked him, and I shan't pretend that I did. Young Lila Maria was a tomboy, a tall, heavy-set girl from an early age. She claimed the huge laugh she got for an accidental tumble during a church performance was what sparked her lifelong love of a good pratfall. Her sister, aptly named Benita, was beautiful. Marie was not. But, she said, I soon learned to be just as happy when folks said, isn't she funny, as if they had awed and owed and exclaimed, isn't she beautiful? Biographer Betty Lee wrote that one night, as 14-year-old Lila was washing dishes to the tune of her father's shouts, she dried her hands and told him she did not intend to be a slave to any man as her mother had been to him. Shortly afterward, she answered an ad for a cheap touring theatrical company in Nevada and was hired. At this time, Lila Maria Kober further distinguished herself from her father by changing her name to Marie Dressler, adopting the surname of one of her aunts. Thus began the slow but steady climb of Marie Dressler from ramshackle touring stock company to Broadway. She spent years in such troops in the days before movies, when they were, along with the circus, the main source of entertainment in small towns and mid-sized cities across the vast expanse of America. Marie paid her dues in the chorus, and her strong singing voice helped her graduate to larger roles in operettas like the Mikado. It took a decade to climb up. Dressler's Broadway debut finally came in 1892, when she was 23. But it wasn't until four years later that the 1896 musical comedy Lady Slavey 
made her a star. The show ran for two years, a superbly long run in those days. By that time, it had become clear that Marie Dressler was a born comedian. By early adulthood, she was five foot seven and 200 pounds, which would remain her dimensions for most of her life. Thus, Dressler was tall and strong enough to haul a male co-star around the set. She would tumble, fall, and knock into things like a male actor would. Several of Dressler's comic songs became hits, selling thousands of sheet music copies and later recordings. One example, the English music hall ditty, I'm a Respectable Working Girl, was recorded in 1910. I once resolved to be a self-supporting suffragette. I vowed, despite my family, my own living I would get. So I started as a manicure, but all the men got gays. I was forced to slap them on the fingernails and say... Now, I'm a respectable working girl. I have no time to dally. I'm none of your hurting parley boos or your ladies of the valley. If you don't behave like a perfect gent right out of the shop, you'll go. I'm a respectable working girl. I'll have you know. This number was written in 1901. It has a marked resemblance to the song most identified with Dressler, Heaven Will Protect the Working Girl which she was to sing in her biggest stage hit, Tilly's Nightmare. Both renditions helped establish the Dressler persona, a woman just like the ordinary, awkward, clumsy, mistreated, and overworked women she sang about and portrayed with such affection. It was an image so lovable and so durable that it was to serve Dressler even years later at MGM. But it seemed that every time she soared, Dressler came tumbling back to earth. She formed a theater troupe in 1900, but it swiftly failed, and Marie declared bankruptcy. It wouldn't be the last time. As for Dressler's personal life, her first short-lived marriage had been to an American theatrical manager named George Hopert. It was significant mainly for helping the Canadian Dressler obtain U.S. citizenship. In 1907, she met James Henry Dalton, nicknamed Sonny Jim. Biographers believe that Marie may have been bisexual or even primarily lesbian, but there's no question that the 39-year-old fell hard for this middle-aged, heavy-set, and mostly unemployed man. They moved to London, where Marie performed her act in music hall shows and was earning a cool $1,500 a week in 1907 dollars. But once again, Marie tried to produce her own show. And once again, it stiffed cold, closing after a single week. She lost her entire savings and went into debt that she was only able to repay more than 20 years later after MGM came calling in 1930. She stayed married to Sonny Jim until his death in 1921. And he remained a shadowy, vaguely managerial presence in her life, disliked and distrusted by most who worked with her. She returned to New York, where, in 1911, at age 42, Marie Dressler had the biggest hit of her career to that point. It was Tilly's Nightmare, a sort of Cinderella story about a boarding house drudge named Tilly Blobs, who falls asleep and dreams herself into various adventures. 
Tilly was built entirely around Marie's talents, and the showstopper was, as we mentioned, Heaven Will Protect the Working Girl. It had morphed into an even more topical, but still funny, ode to the women going from drudgery at home to long hours and what we would call harassment at work. Tilly ran for a year and made Dressler a rich woman, at least for the time being. But it was a seemingly small incident that occurred when the play went on tour that had perhaps the greatest impact on her life. Future screenwriter Frances Marion was working at the San Francisco Examiner, the flagship paper of media magnate and eventual Citizen Kane model William Randolph Hearst. Marion had been assigned to the theater desk and was sent to get an interview with Marie Dressler, who had arrived with Tilly's Nightmare for a run in San Francisco. What Marion didn't know was that Dressler, like many others, was at war with Hearst and his low-down, gossipy papers. As Marion biographer Carrie Beecham tells it, the male editors had set Francis on the assignment as their idea of a joke. And sure enough, when Marion gave the name of her paper, a furious Dressler stormed out of the press conference. Marion stuck around backstage even after the performance was over. Dressler came out of her dressing room, ready to go back to her hotel, and Marion at last called out, Miss Dressler, if I don't get this interview, I'll lose my job. Dressler stopped. Is that what those bastards told you? She asked. And, as Beecham put it, Marie Dressler took pity on the girl 20 years younger than she and half her size. Let's go into my dressing room, child, she said, and I'll give you the gall-darndest interview I've ever given to any reporter. And Dressler did. It was an act of kindness that Marion never forgot, spawning a friendship that lasted until Dressler's death. It also meant that years later, when Marie Dressler was on the skids, Frances Marion would be there to help her out. Nineteen fourteen saw Marie Dressler, now in her mid-forties, making her screen debut in the title role of Tilly's punctured romance. Max Sennett, chief executive of Keystone Film and a towering figure in early American screen comedy, convinced Dressler to try her hand in a new medium. Given the success of Tilly's Nightmare, on which the movie is very loosely based, Sennett was willing to spend big and make the comedy at six reels resulting in what many call the first feature-length comedy. Marie was given the luxury of a 14-week shooting schedule, and none other than Keystone stars Charlie Chaplin and Mabel Normand to play the smooth criminals in a new plotline that would see them trying to con rich Tilly Banks out of her inheritance. The combination of Chaplin, Normand, and Dressler resulted in a huge hit. Seen today, the movie is an exercise in extreme slapstick, a nonstop melee of pratfalls and kicked backsides. And while Dressler's wild mugging heralds her hilarious reactions in later films, her sense of the camera definitely improved with time. Still, audiences ate it up. Dressler was now a bona fide movie star. But, as usual, it didn't last long. Marie's attempt to capitalize on the Tilly character with two sequels 
Tilly's tomato surprise in 1915 and Tilly wakes up in 1917 failed to come close to the success of the original. She went back east, and as the U.S. entered World War I, Dressler sold war bonds, often touring with Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, and Charlie Chaplin. In her autobiography, Dressler proudly claimed to have sold more war bonds than any other individual in the United States. Upon the war's end, Dressler became caught up in the chorus girl strike of 1919, which was to lead to the founding of Actors' Equity. And it's here that the legend of Marie Dressler, beloved old trooper and friend of the working girl, was sealed with her colleagues as well as with the public. The chorus members were among the most poorly paid and egregiously mistreated workers on Broadway, and Dressler well remembered her own early days as a Corrine. After a stirring speech at the first meeting, she was elected president of the Chorus Equity Association and walked the picket lines with her girls. It endeared Marie to the lower ranks, but did nothing for her career. In Matthew Kennedy's book on Dressler, he says theater managers were known to climb out via the fire escape when Marie came looking for work. Marie's inability to gain traction as a star owed to more than a widely disliked manager husband, a few years off doing war work, and blackballing from anti-union management. Marie believed she still had what it took. But as she approached 50, she found the money men didn't agree. Producers, she wrote later, told each other the post-war world wanted youth and beauty and love. And they wanted it straight. No homely old women to clutter up the scene. Marie herself wasn't bothered by getting older. But as she made the rounds of the casting offices, she realized she was perceived as washed up. Marie had known hard times before, but none so hard as these. The 20s didn't roar for her. Sonny Jim had a stroke sometime around 1920 and spent his last months in a wheelchair until his death in 1921. Marie wasn't even able to bury him. Dalton had never bothered to divorce his first wife, and it was she who was given custody of his remains. Still in debt, Marie worked only intermittently and, legend has it, resorted to the occasional breadline. But here, in 1927, is where Frances Marion re-enters the scene, although she had never really left, having remained friends with Dressler after that encounter in San Francisco. In the intervening years, Marion's career had soared as she wrote hit after hit for Mary Pickford. And Marion was now MGM's prize screenwriter. A mutual friend wrote to Marion that Dressler was on the verge of accepting a job as a housekeeper on Long Island and asked, isn't it possible for you to write a part for her in one of your movies? And so Marion wrote a silent movie called The Callahans and the Murphys, a sort of buddy comedy with Marie opposite Polly Moran. Moran was a fellow ex-vaudevillian and a star of dozens of Keystone shorts. Like Marie, she was a fearless knockabout player. Through this and their other seven films together, Moran didn't seem to mind playing second banana to Dressler. More importantly, Marion persuaded her boss, Irving Thalberg, 
MGM's head of production and the so-called boy wonder of Hollywood to put Dressler under contract, thus solving Marie's cash flow difficulties. The audience reaction to the Callahans and the Murphys was promising. The great Harold Lloyd said it was one of the funniest comedies ever made. But then, disaster. Catholic organizations and the ancient order of Hibernians were just the first in what became a torrent of objections to the film's drunken, brawling Irish stereotypes. The Callahans and the Murphys was pulled from theaters, and by most accounts, it has never been seen since. With the salary Dressler was now getting from MGM, at least this was a paid setback. She made some lower budget and two real comedies and got an excellent part in one A-budget silent in 1928. The Patsy, starring Marion Davies, a gifted comedian who was also the longtime mistress of Dressler's old enemy, William Randolph Hearst. Fortunately, that feud had long since been patched up. In this charming movie, we can at last perceive the Marie Dressler who would soon dominate the box office as she bosses around the family and tries to sabotage her daughter's romance. By now, Hollywood was transitioning pell-mell to talkies, which naturally posed no problem to theater veteran Dressler. MGM thought enough of her prospects to give her a featured number in Hollywood Review of 1929, an all-star musical variety show meant to prove the studio's stars could, indeed, talk. Marie's big number was, For I'm the Queen. For I'm the Queen. I'm the Queen. My subjects must remember I'm supreme. I can even take a life. Or a husband from a wife. I can eat peas with my knife. For I'm the Queen. Still, in late 1929, when Marion went to director Clarence Brown to say that she wanted him to cast Marie Dressler as Marthy in Anna Christie, Brown said, Dressler? In a Eugene O'Neill play? She's a slapstick Senate comic. Marion talked him into giving Dressler a test, and her performance was so perfectly in tune with the material that Brown made no further objections. When the movie was released, Dressler got the best reviews of her life. Miss Dressler is gorgeous in the part, was the verdict of The New Yorker, with a deliberate play on words. At last, Dressler was back in business. MGM responded in the classic studio way by not knowing what to do with her. She did get a chance to shine in her one hilarious drunk scene in The Girl Said No, one of the talkies William Haynes made before his refusal to conceal his longtime gay relationship resulted in the end of his acting career. Still, in The Girl Said No, Dressler was again playing a rich dowager and was also a supporting player. But if MGM couldn't figure out Dressler's strengths, Frances Marion already had. She believed her friend was at her best playing a hard-luck working woman, and she also believed Marie Dressler could carry an entire movie. With these skills in mind, Marion wrote a script that well and truly made Marie Dressler a star. In Men and Bill, Dressler played Min, 
who runs a broken-down dockside inn and maintains a brawling, boozy relationship with Bill, a fisherman played by Wallace Beery. In a casting move that was unusual then and virtually unheard of now, Beery was 15 years younger than Dressler. But Beery's roughhouse face and manner matched well with his co-star. Marion wrote a script that mixed pathos with knockabout comedy and gave Dressler the chance to show range as Min tries to make a better life for her pretty adopted daughter, Nancy, played by Dorothy Jordan. The final scene in which Min sacrifices everything for Nancy and watches the girl go off happily with a rich young man left audiences in tears. Reviews were mixed, but the box office results told a different story. Min and Bill was the biggest grossing film that MGM released that year. The early days of the Depression found more than one big studio scrambling to avoid bankruptcy. MGM remained in the black, and the returns from Min and Bill, as well as the movies that Dressler made afterward, were a big reason why. At the age of 62, Marie Dressler was an indisputable star. Fan magazines relished the tale of her hard scrabble path to the top. By 1931, the U.S. unemployment rate stood at 15%. By 1933, it would peak at nearly a quarter of the working population. The people who bought ticket after ticket for Marie Dressler's movies knew that their idol had been unemployed too that she had been broke, had stood on breadlines, and been told she was too old, and they loved her for it. MGM rushed Dressler into more movies, some with her frequent co-star, Polly Morant. One was called Reducing, referring to what we would now call dieting, and it followed Dressler and Morant trying to do just that. While Dressler was well-loved, her appearance was still the butt of jokes. According to film historian John McElwee, one theater owner promoted reducing with an offer of free tickets to any woman who weighed more than 180 pounds. To prove it, you had to step on a scale in the box office. Another Dressler Moran vehicle was Politics, an interesting film where Dressler's character runs against a corrupt mayor supported by the women of the town. And later still, in 1932, Yet another film in which Dressler spoke to her audience's economic anxiety was Prosperity, which saw Dressler playing the president of a bank. In all of these Dressler Moran buddy comedies, there was no question as to who was the greater attraction. MGM signed Dressler to a long-term contract, although they paid her less than what she was worth, and ad campaigns leaned heavily on Dressler's appeal. Marie Dressler's is the magic name that thrills the folks, went one ad. Another said, Prosperity is just around the corner, and that's where the long, long line will be to buy the laughs. Late in 1931, when the Academy Award nominations were announced, Marie was nominated for Best Actress for Men and Bill, alongside Marlena Dietrich, Anne Harding, Norma Shearer, and Irene Dunn. The oldest of the other four actresses was Dunn, who was all of 32. The night of the ceremony, Norma Shearer, 
who had also won the previous year for the divorcee, read a prepared speech describing what happened when Miss Dressler was called to the set. The door will open, and down the long corridor of the dressing room building will come the thump, thump, thumping footsteps of that grand old fire horse, Marie Dressler. At that point, the cheers were already beginning. Even the waiters in the back of the ballroom were waving their napkins over their heads. By the end, Shearer was close to tears, as she described Dressler as someone who is not only a great artist, but someone we all dearly love, and called her name as the winner. Dressler sat still for a moment in shock. Like an old Model T Ford, she later told a reporter, I had to be cranked up. There was also the fact that 10-year-old Jackie Cooper, who was nominated for Best Actor, had long since fallen asleep in Marie's lap. She gently shifted Cooper over to his mother and walked up to accept the award. Dressler said that when she arrived at the podium and looked back at her table, she saw Frances Marion smiling a triumphant, I told you so smile. It was a triumph that Dressler could scarcely have imagined less than five years earlier, when Marion was all that stood between her and becoming a maid. Even now, Marie didn't have long to savor the moment. The next morning, as she was reading the paper, Marie saw a brief item about the suicide of an actress named Jane, one of Dressler's long-ago pals from the chorus line. Jane had told her landlady that at age 60, no one wanted her, and it was too late to start again. In her memoir, Dressler said she slipped the Oscar into a bureau drawer. The contrast between her good fortune and her old friend's fate made the gold statue too painful to look at. By this time, Dressler had moved into a bigger and nicer house. Since about 1928, Dressler had maintained what may have been a romantic relationship with former actress Claire Dubray, and the much younger Dubray also acted as a sort of nurse and caretaker to Dressler. At the age of 63, Dressler was maintaining the shooting schedule of a much younger woman. Her next film, released in 1932, was one of her most successful, Emma, the story of a housekeeper who tenderly helps a widower, played by Jean Hersholt, to raise his three children. She marries the widower, he leaves her his fortune, and the adult children turn on Emma. But after twists and tragedies, they learn her true worth. It is a gentle and lovable film, one of Dressler's best, and got her another Oscar nod. Dressler had become a Hollywood institution, held up as a model of how to approach growing old. Screenland magazine named her one of the six most charming women in Hollywood and declared she has taken the fear out of age for women. It was at the rap party for Emma that Louis B. Mayer told Marie he had noticed a rash on her arm and that he wanted her to go to his doctor to get checked out. Dressler had been battling headaches, fatigue, and other symptoms for months, but she did her best to work through them. Now, after the exam was completed, Mayer told Claire Dubray 
that Dressler had cancer. And in fact, Mayer had known for some time. Six months before, Dressler had undergone an operation to remove a cyst. But the lab report had, incredible as it sounds, been sent to Mayer's doctor and not to Marie's. Only now did Marie start treatments. And even now, while Claire Dubray was told the truth, Dressler still wasn't. Hiding a terminal cancer diagnosis from the afflicted was once fairly common. In this case, although we'll never know for sure, Mayer may have been withholding the information since July in hopes of getting his star to complete one more picture without upsetting either the fans or Dressler herself. But in the ensuing months, Dressler's popularity had only grown, defying all expectations and proving anyone who had said this old woman's stardom was a fluke to be terribly wrong. So now, wrote Lee, Mayer decided to seek help in keeping her alive as long as possible. From then on, Mayer supervised a long series of treatments, which included painful injections of horse serum that Dressler was told were iron shots. Not until June, nearly a year after her cyst operation, was Dressler told the truth. She responded by refusing to believe it, until the symptoms grew unmistakable. Dubray and Dressler began to quarrel over Marie's health, over her work schedule, over whether Mare was a benevolent boss, as Marie wanted to believe, or a man solely interested in making a buck off his star, as Claire believed. By the time 1932 ended, they had split, and they never spoke again. Dressler's next major role was the one she is best remembered for to this day, Carlotta Vance, the former Broadway star who is one of the guests in 1933's Dinner at Eight. Director George Cukor had to be talked into casting Dressler. Carlotta was once a famed beauty, and he said no one would ever believe that about Dressler. She, of course, proved him wrong. Among an all-star cast, that included Lionel and John Barrymore, as well as Wallace Beery and Billy Burke, Dressler nimbly stole every scene she was in, whether scolding her tiny dog Tarzan for soiling the carpet or acidly responding to a reference to her age. You know, we must have a nice talk about the civil war sometime. Just you and I. And with Jean Harlow, whom Dressler adored, she delivered what many believe to be the greatest closing line of all time. I was reading a book the other day. Reading a book? Yes, it's all about civilization or something, a nutty kind of a book. Uh, Do you know that the guy says that machinery is going to take the place of every profession? Oh, my dear. That's something you need never worry about. <laughs> Dressler made yet another big hit, Tugboat Annie directed by Mervyn Leroy, again with Wallace Beery, and again playing a tough waterfront souse. This time, Dressler runs a tugboat and is married to Beery, and they have a son. Mayer ordered that Dressler work no more than three hours a day. 
Dressler, now considered a font of wisdom by her millions of fans, told the papers that Tugboat Annie had been a pleasure. I love any role which shows that if you aren't afraid of life, life can't hurt you, she said. She made one more film, Christopher Bean. Once again, Marie Dressler's name shone at the box office, but the movie hasn't been seen publicly in decades due to rights conflicts. In November of 1933, Louis B. Mayer held an enormous birthday party for Marie, attended by nearly everyone in Hollywood, and broadcast via live radio to nearly 20 million listeners. Dressler was touched. But the massive festivity also wore her out, and it was her last public appearance. MGM continued to announce new Marie Dressler films, one with Harlow, another with Beery. Biographer Betty Lee has speculated that these announcements were probably designed as much to boost Dressler's morale as to convince the public that there was nothing ominous about her absence from the screen. Hollywood itself knew better, of course. Frances Marion came to visit Dressler one last time, shortly before she died. Marie Dressler died on July 28, 1934. MGM stopped production for the funeral and flew its flags at half-mast. Tributes poured into fan magazines and newspapers. She had met poverty and disappointment and heartbreak without flinching, said Photoplay magazine, describing her last days. Now she met pain and illness with a smile that refused to be dimmed. Marie Tressler was the most successful example of a type that has virtually disappeared from modern screens, the vivid, humorous, canny old woman. Marjorie Rambeau, Marjorie Maine, Mae Robson, Louise Fazenda, Jane Darwell, Edna May Oliver, Thelma Ritter, all of them strode across the screen, stealing scenes until the 1960s new wave lost interest and killed them off. Nowadays, older actresses like Helen Mirren and Meryl Streep have thriving careers and play leading roles, but they are still expected to project a certain level of beauty and glamour. Perhaps the one who comes closest to an old-school grand dame is Kathy Bates, but she has never been a star on the level of Marie Dressler, who sold millions of tickets on her name alone. Today, there is even a Marie Dressler Museum in her birthplace of Coburg, Ontario, dedicated to celebrating her life and career. Her stardom, says Matthew Kennedy, is one of the great anomalies in Hollywood history, a kind of adoration that isn't supposed to happen to an older, homely woman. But that doesn't mean we should give up hope that lightning will strike again. Marie Dressler certainly never did. Thanks for listening to Make Me Over, a special presentation of You Must Remember This. This episode was written and performed by Farron Nemey. Make Me Over was created and directed by Karina Longworth. 
that's me. I also edited the scripts. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Make Me Over is produced by Tomika Weatherspoon, and the audio is edited by Jared O'Connell and Tomika Weatherspoon. Our audio engineers are Jared O'Connell, Andrea Christens, and Brendan Burns. The supervising producer is Josephine Martirana, and the executive producer is Chris Bannon. We'll be back next week with another tale about the intersection of 20th century Hollywood and the beauty industry. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Stitcher.